This is Digital Health Today, episode 17. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators, and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. This episode is brought to you by Zero Accounting Software. If you're looking for a great way to manage your books, I recommend you look at Xero. That's X-E-R-O software. Xero is a beautiful, easy to use cloud-based accounting software that's ideal for small and medium businesses. Xero has nearly 1 million subscribers in over 180 countries, and it's accessible anytime, anywhere, and even on your mobile device. It seamlessly integrates with over 500 apps and was ranked number one by Forbes as the world's most innovative growth company. Get a 30-day free trial by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash free. Hello and welcome back. It is 2017 and we are off to a flying start. We've got a new president, a new Europe taking shape, and with all the division that's taking place around the world, it's great to have a place where we can bring people together here on this podcast where we're working to bring about the positive changes in personal and population health through the effective use of technology. Speaking of bringing people together, let me tell you about the CES meeting I attended in Las Vegas early in January. I don't know if you've ever been there, but that meeting just blows my mind. It is a massive event. This year, there were over 175,000 people. More than 3,000 companies were spread out over 2.1 million square feet of exhibition space and over 7,500 media attended. That is more than the 2016 Olympics. Inside this massive event, I attended the Digital Health Summit, which featured some leaders like Ashisha Treasure of Mount Sinai in Manhattan, who was a guest on Episode 6, and Daniel Kraft, who's the chair of medicine at Singularity University and the founder of Exponential Medicine, and who incidentally will be featured in an upcoming podcast, so be sure to look out for that. There was also a phenomenal session on virtual reality led by Arshia Vahabzadeh of Harvard Medical School. Now I'll be interviewing him soon after airing this podcast, so if you have questions, tweet me at HealthTechDan or directly to the show at dhealthtoday. If you want a sneak peek to learn a little more about him, you can see the session he led with Justin Barrett of VR and Brennan Spiegel of Cedar sinai A video of that session can be found on our blog. Just head over to digitalhealthtoday.com and you'll find it posted there. We don't talk about the blog very much on this show, but maybe I should. This isn't just a podcast, folks. We have a blog and resources, freebies, events, useful tools, all sorts of things on our website. You can also see a post there on the blog about some of the cool health tech that I saw in Vegas. So go and check it out, digitalhealthtoday.com. Okay, my guest today is an executive entrepreneur turned digital health entrepreneur. You may have seen him on stage talking about innovation as a digital health evangelist. John Reed spent over 14 years leading global drug development and healthcare innovation at Quintiles, where he also led internal startups as the head of digital health acceleration. Late last year, he decided to make a jump from the global giant and is now the chief product officer and partner at Thread Research based in North Carolina. Thread contributed to four of the first eight studies that were done with Apple's research kit, and they work with biopharmaceutical companies, CROs, and healthcare providers to provide a platform that transforms remote patient research and care. On this episode, we talk about the use of tools like Apple's HealthKit, ResearchKit, and CareKit, as well as another platform that works for Android. We cover a lot of ground here, so be sure to check out the complete show notes by visiting our website at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 17. Now let's tune into the interview with John Reitz. John, thanks so much for joining us on the program and welcome to the show. Dan, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to the uh, conversation today. Excellent, John. I've given the listeners a little bit of insight into your background. Uh, can you fill in some gaps and give us a little bit of a vision in terms of uh, the journey that you've taken to get where you are today? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, for for me, actually, you know, I've been involved in research 
clinical research, healthcare research for you know a little over 14 and a half years. Uh, there was this real pivotal moment for me, though, and this pivotal moment happened about eight years ago now where I had an opportunity to enroll in a clinical trial. And I'll tell you that the gap really changed for me because once I enrolled in a clinical trial and I learned how um, non-conformative it was to my lifestyle, how frankly it just wasn't a great experience, and I ended up being a clinical trial dropout. So I dropped out of the study after several months. And after me going through that experience, my wife enrolling in, in a couple clinical trials as well, it, it sort of brought to life the reason we want digital health to move forward and the reason I want to see it move forward is to make not just the research better, but the patient experience and what we're doing to help patients participate in research be more conducive. And so, frankly, that pivotal moment for me about eight years ago is really when things changed and when I really got to sort of take my, my, the capabilities I had and just, frankly, being a nerd and shift those to digital health to really start to make a difference um, in sort of the way we deliver healthcare, but also the way that we deliver clinical research to patients. You were with Quintiles for many years, since I think about 2003 or 2002 even. Um, right. So eight years ago, about 2008, you joined a clinical study. What made you decide to sign up yourself and become uh, a subject within a study? Yeah, so the two things. One is uh, the study was in relation to uh, my younger brother who has a, uh, who has a condition, and, and they were trying to look at genetic symbols, and they were trying to also look at family members and if they had the same uh, treatment issues or the same condition issues. Um, and we thought that I might have them, so we enrolled in the study. So I, there was an altruism point of part of me that wanted to participate. But then on the other hand, frankly, when someone came and said, hey, do you want to be part of a research study? I kind of said, yeah, I've been doing this work for you know seven years. I've never actually participated in one. And so it was for me, it was kind of like that moment where I realized like um, – like I was the manager of a store, but I had never actually shopped there. Right. And so for me, I kind of went, oh, I get an opportunity to shop. I get an opportunity to be a customer. And so I, I jumped at it because I just really wanted to see how it would be and to really just take that experience on. And again, one of the best decisions in my career I made was to make that personal decision to participate in a clinical research study. And that's really interesting that even though you were doing it for years, you did it since 2002 to 2016, and you know it inside and out, and you still made the decision that you needed to drop out yourself. There's a lot of amazing clinical research studies and practitioners that do an amazing job. And I think I just got into one of these studies where it wasn't that the people were bad. It wasn't that anybody was, was evil. It was that the study was non-conducive, meaning it just wasn't – they would ask me questions like, hey, can you come in the office between 4 and 4.15 next Monday? so that we can give you 37 pieces of paper to fill out. And I was like, no, I can't actually. Could we do this or that? Or could I just, could you give it to me? Back then we weren't using phones as much. Could you give it to me on the web? And the answer was no. And so some really simple principles weren't in play that really would have actually made my experience a lot better. They would have made it easier for me to participate. And so I think just that small barrier taught me a lot about, about how we have to really reduce the barrier of entry and make and use sort of the technologies and what we have available that consumers, that people are already using today, how we needed to make that available to them, for them to want to be a part of healthcare, want for them to be a part of clinical research because we're serving them better in that way. Let's talk a little bit more about what your role was there at Quintiles. I know you've done, you did a lot of different things, but one of the roles that you held was an entrepreneur position. So can you tell me a little bit about what that meant in your specific role and within Quintiles as an intrapreneur? Yeah, so uh, amazing company, uh, and again, I spent a, a lot of my career life there. And um, when I say entrepreneur, what that means is is we were given a, a certain you know individuals in the company. People were empowered to be entrepreneur, which means to think entrepreneurially in a corporate company. 
And so what that gave the opportunity is for me and other people to really um, look at sort of an innovation, um, a business model, maybe a new startup division in the company, and to become a part of that and to help it to grow and build new innovations and change the way even our business would work because innovation was critical to stay the market leader. And that last seven, eight years really focused on digital health, focused on mobile, on wearables, and some other integrations that were coming out in the market that we really thought would be the future. And we wanted to be uh, leaders in that space and really adapt and use them early on. Because again, we saw the the promise of digital health to really change the way we do work. To get from 2008 to 2016, can you tell us a little bit about some of the different types of innovations that are happening in this very important area of clinical research? Yeah, so so the, I'd say that there were a couple waves. I would say the first wave was really EDC, so electronic data capture. And I remember I was on one of the first EDC studies done in the industry. And it was so funny to me that, like, I remember that first couple weeks after the study got up and running, and I opened up a form in the EDC, which was the form that the doctor or the nurse would actually fill in. And you just looked at it and you went, oh, my gosh, do you know how much work it used to take us to, like, print that copy and make a three-part NCR and move it over in this binder? And so it really started with yeah, electronic data capture was sort of like that first instance of really taking digital health and making things digital, moving them forward. And then what got really interesting is after we started moving into that, we started looking at how do we take EDC models and how do we stretch out patient visits, right? How do we get people to come to a clinic less often so that we can reduce the overall cost of a study? And then how can we start to collect data that otherwise we wouldn't have been able to collect? And so I remember even like around, around uh, four and a half, five years ago when some of the first consumer wearables were starting to hit the market, I, I was a part of a couple studies that were testing, actually, one, I think one of the first five in clinical research, so five studies that was testing a consumer wearable. So not an actograph or, or sort of a more um, scientifically validated. These are more the consumer devices. And, and just testing those and putting them to see what kind of contextual data we could gather from patients. And I think the amazing thing was is we were testing the models to bring this in, but we were also testing, like, the patients actually like this stuff. Uh, do people actually want to use a wearable? Do they, does that actually make them more engaged in a clinical research study? And frankly, the, all the data and the findings that we would continue to learn would say that they did. I remember one study with a consumer wearable. We literally made them wear it on their upper arm for like months on end, and they could only take it off when they showered or bathed. And at the end of the study, we asked a ton of questions um, around wearing the wearable. Was it comfortable? Did you like it? And then we also asked them questions like, would you do a study again with this where you had to wear it this intensely? And the metric of you know, asking patients whether they'd be willing to wear that or a similar device for a longer-term study again, um, it was like 87% of people were saying, absolutely. Like, I actually like it. I feel like I'm participating. I used to call it, it looked like the Lance Armstrong bracelet, where it was like mm -hmm. a constant reminder of what they were a part of. And so these, just, just doing these practical things, bringing them to the table, integrating them together, and collecting contextual data we hadn't before. I think that's really um, what's what had been changing since sort of the launch of some of these you know, new technologies that come out. Yeah, it's been exciting to see the advent of these wearables come into clinical research. I, I'm not familiar with any particular projects that Quintiles has done, but I've been involved in a few other ones with uh, some pharma companies and feedback is very positive. One of the, the challenges is around uh, the connectivity piece. What were you guys doing to actually provide the connectivity? So giving a person a wearable they can put on their arm or on their hip or in their pocket or, uh, you know, if it's a blood pressure monitor on their kitchen counter or anything like that, that's one piece. But 
Uh, how about the connectivity, being able to provide that information up to the internet? Are you, were you guys working on tablets? Sure. Yeah, so there was definitely a wave of after EDC where people were using provision device approaches, right? We're sending lockdown Galaxy tablets or iPads or iPhones or, you know, um, you know, sort of any Android device, but locking those down, giving them to people. As we've started to make the shift to BYOD, to where people are actually bringing their own mobile to the table, um, what I would tell you even today, um, that that connectivity is relatively simple, actually, when you, especially when you look at like a lot of the work we're doing off of the um, Apple's open source in, in, in health kit, research kit, and care kit. If you just look at the number of integrations that we've already done today, just off of what's connected to health kit, you know, from um, Apple Watch, which we built some apps and connected to, to Withings, to other devices, um, what we're trying to do is is not try to produce new connectivity for patients. We're trying to say, hey, we've put a we've built a mobile experience for you that makes it really easy for you to connect your existing wearable, or we have this new wearable we're going to give you. And in that workflow, in that sort of onboarding the patient does on the app, they can sync up or connect that wearable that we've we've given to them. And so there's a couple different models here, but I guess you're really hitting on the key variable, which is how do we make this really simple? How do we make it really um, where it doesn't need a training video <laughs> to, to help somebody sync this stuff up. And I think that's really what we've seen change over the last several years. Because in the past, it was really controlled today with APIs, open source SDKs, HealthKit, um, companies like Validic and other companies out there. There are actually ports and connectivity to make this stuff happen that's really usable and is cost effective um, in the sort of overall approach that is a clinical research study or remote patient study. Great. So you've got fantastic perspective to answer this question. One of the things that often comes up in conversations is, but the people who we need to use this drug won't have smartphones or tablets. And, and I have an opinion on that. What's your experience in these studies? Yeah, great question. Some of the most engaged mobile studies I had were in populations over between 55 and 65. Um, and so what I would say is that that's not a limiting factor. If you look overall at metrics in the U.S. about smartphone usage, what you'll see that's really changed, just like Facebook usage and other digital enablement metrics, is that older generations, one, the people that were younger 10 years ago are now 10 years older. But as you look at that, if you look at that divide, we're actually seeing uptakes across the board, regardless of demographic, socioeconomic status, or age in mobile. The other thing that I think is really interesting is we're, we're typically talking about a U.S. perspective here. When you go global, and I've done a lot of work in mobile and wearables globally, and when you go global, um, that premise that we make, in the, in, especially in the U.S., if we think about it from a U.S. perspective, really doesn't apply. Actually, in some global countries, we have older generations just as digit-enabled as younger generations because that mobile phone is actually how they do their banking, how they pay their house, how they do their mortgage. It's, it's a lot of other things. And so what I would say is that, um, that there's definitely certain conditions. There's definitely certain populations, definitely certain areas of the country where not everybody's mobile enabled. But, but if you look at the amount of people that we're trying to reach to participate in clinical trials, so you think about this metric, about uh, an average of about 4% of all people in the U.S. will ever hear about a clinical trial in their lifetime. Okay, so you take, think about that. And then we say, well, everybody doesn't have a mobile phone. Well, if 60% of the U.S. has a smartphone, we don't really have a problem there because it's a lot better than the 4% that are ever going to hear about a clinical trial in their life. So I think, too, we kind of use that as an excuse 
uh, more than sort of a, a, an enabler to show that consumers are moving in this direction and we actually need to keep pace. I agree. There, there's a lot of excuses that will keep people from moving forward and adopting uh, adopting new technology. And Philips did an interesting body of research, and they released it back in, I think it was May, the Future Health Index, where they looked around the globe at various countries. And they found also that, that older populations, 55 and older uh, and 65 and older, had a very high level of, of digital enablement. You've talked about three things briefly. I want to dive in a little bit uh, into the specific ones just to clarify for the audience. Can you give us a little bit of insight into the research kit, health kit, and care kit, what the differences are and how they're applied in clinical research? Sure, absolutely. So I was a a part of some early work in research kit with a a fantastic team, really proud to do that. And one of the things I'll tell you is that when um, health kit came out, health kit's um, sort of its reason for being was to be a health app on your iPhone that could connect a number of different data integrations around your health. So you could collect steps from different fitness monitors or consumer wearables. You could also um, connect some of the sensors built into the phone, and you could individually opt those in in your health app on your iPhone so that you could activate those and and essentially collect them and then show them in a visual, like an in-app analytic to show somebody like me sort of what, what my health looks like. And you could pull in data from my fitness pal, and from all these different things. But again, HealthKit was sort of, think about it like the like the center of collecting all this data. It stayed on your phone, so it was secure. And it was also a port to connect to other EMRs. So when you look at some of the innovative work that Duke and Stanford and other people did connecting their EMRs into HealthKit, so not only could a patient have a MyChart app through Epic, say, but they could also have some of that data flow through and connect with HealthKit. That became a really um, innovative way to give people access to their medical information or health information on their phone. And so HealthKit came out and was sort of the standardization of, of, and the stabilization of that data. And then when Apple released ResearchKit, ResearchKit is relatively simple. Um, it's, it's an open source SDK, so it's a software development kit that basically gives you modules that are needed in most every research study. And there's some basic modules like consent, surveys, active tasks. And and those modules essentially allow you to take that open source code and build an app. And that app is the study for the patient. And so ResearchKit is basically that open source framework. And again, if you look at that code, the neat thing about open source code is that there's developers, researchers, pharma companies around the globe that are, are working with that code, making it better, or introducing new code, and they're giving it back to the open source as an open innovation model. Meaning that a lot of the work we're doing with customers across the board is once they build something, um, once we develop something, if we find that there's a, a custom active task or a custom something they did, and we said, hey, we can help them bridge and give that back to the open source so researchers could use that over and over and over again on future studies. And so that's what ResearchKit is. It's this open source layer that has an SDK. And again, that SDK requires a lot of work. You've got to be a developer. You've got to know what you're doing uh, to build an app. But it gives you a framework to start. CareKit is actually just like ResearchKit, but its focus is on digital care plans. So it's more for a hospital system that's trying to give patients like a daily list of these are some things that you should do because maybe you've come out of surgery and we want to we want to reduce your readmittance. And so we give you this app that has these 
tools in it that helps you either take assessments or walking tests or gives you advice, but it does it all on that app so that you don't have to keep coming back to the doctor's office or calling the doctor. You kind of have that care plan active. And, you know, typically care plans today are like a, you know, a, a PDF that's been like copied like 98 times and it's like people handwrite on them. And, and so, so again, it's taking something very, very um, strategic, very important in the healthcare system and making it digital. And when you do that, CareKit as, it, as, um, as a whole um, lets you connect other data to it. It lets you do a lot of other things. But at its root, it's an SDK, a software development kit that you can lift up to make a care program uh, in an app. Uh, there's one other one, though, Dan, I want to tell you about just because we're having a discussion. So there's a fourth thing in this, in this okay. ecosystem, and it's, it's called Research Stack. And that is the Android conversion tool that takes research kit and converts it to Android, which was really important for the industry. Some really, really brilliant people worked on that. And Mole Mapper um, was actually the first study that we're aware of that was public and open that converted over to Android using research stack. And so what that means is that there's, these are sort of standardizing something that a lot of people are trying to build, standardizing and making it more efficient, at least at the code level. Does that help? Yeah, that helps a lot. Thanks a lot for giving that overview. And I actually was going to mention research stack as well. So thanks for plugging that one in. I will make sure that we have uh, links in the show notes to all four of those those resources that people can access quickly and learn a little bit more uh, about um, the SDKs themselves and uh, and sign up for the program if they'd, if they'd like to through Apple or through uh, researchstack.org. Um, can you give us an example? I mean, that, that's really fascinating that, that uh, people can uh, get their care plan. Can you tell us a little bit about how that actually translates and what the user experience is and, and any in interaction in terms of their uh, spouses, caregivers, things like that, that, that allows their care plan to be uh, visualized and shared? Is that something that's possible? Yeah, it is. What's really, what's really cool about um, CareKit, and again, uh, if, and I'll just do so people kind of understand how this works, is so if you've got a CareKit SDK, so you've got this code for CareKit. A thread, we come in and we have a platform that takes that CareKit code, lifts it up, and provides sort of the, in, the uh, integrations, the patient engagement functionality, the, the um, sort of look and feel, and sort of glues that together and, and gives it some additional functionality so it can be customized and built for a very particular use case. And so in CareKit's use case, we have a number of hospital systems and, and other uh, customers that we're working with. And when those customers sort of look at using CareKit in their business, CareKit's the basis. It sort of is like the 20% that you need to start with. We lift it up in our platform, build out the rest. And that build out simply looks like this. It looks like that there's a visual for a um, somebody in the clinic. So somebody in the clinic, like a doctor, can actually see the care plans or see the care plan library. There's a patient-facing app that can be handed to the patient so they could use pre-op, uh, pre you know, during uh, their, their visit to, say, sort of a, you know, a hospital setting. Uh, and then post, sort of either that event or post that um, surgery or whatever that would be. And, and then, again, in the app for the patient, there's a connect module. And that connect module is like a private messaging tool where they can be they can be private messaged to from a healthcare provider, from a care team member, from a you know diabetologist, like whomever is around that patient helping them. They the patient and that person can communicate bidirectionally with each other. And what another really cool thing is that that if the physician that's caring for them 
gets a phone call and they talk to the patient. They say, hey, you know what? You need to make this adjustment in your care plan. Like, uh, you know, I, this happened. I want you to go walk a little bit more, making that as an extreme example. They could then uh, tweak that care plan for that patient and it would change in the patient's mobile app. So moving forward or for that day, they're getting a responsive care plan. So it's not the static paper form just in a digital format. It's this responsive thing that can move and shift to be very precise for that very individual person. And so that's really what I like about CareKit. I think that's what's disruptive about it. And that work also, you know, typically in the past used to cost multi, multi, multi millions of dollars, like lots of money. And so a lot of hospital systems would be reluctant to do it because there was so much of a barrier financially to entry. Now that this technology is coming in and we're standardizing it, making it more achievable, the price points are coming down a lot. So it's very disruptive, not just in its cost efficient sort of manner, but also the fact that people can customize it a little bit too and still get it for that cheaper price. And I think that's that's really what we need for people to uptake mobile health and to really start to use it to replace the things they're doing in their business rather than just adding on to the things they're doing in their business. They really need that to scale. They really need it to be customized and they really need it to be at a more cost-effective price point because frankly, a lot of hospital systems have spent a lot of their money on their EMR and, and customizing the EMR. They don't have a lot left to, to spend on sort of the new innovations. And so again, I think this gives an opportunity for new innovation to come in in a very cost-effective manner. That's great. That's really helpful. I mean, you, you mentioned it there in terms of what's happening at Thread, but uh, let's, let's go back a little bit. You spent about 14 years with Quintiles, and uh, that's when you and I first connected was with your work there and all the different uh, speaking that you were doing and uh, making the circus and really uh, uh, creating new pathways and, and uh, new thought around uh, what's happening with digital health and clinical research or contract research organizations. Then recently you made a switch to Thread Research uh, based there in North Carolina. Um, can you tell me why why you made the switch? I mean, you, you've gone from Quintiles, which is an interesting leader, great company, as you said, and now you've gone to a relatively early stage business. Can you give us some insight about what made you want to do that and, and uh, where Thread is in, in their development? You know, for me, the, the move to Thread um, was actually more about the opportunity to be an intra- uh, move from entrepreneur to be an entrepreneur, to sort of be in a, a smaller company um, where I'm a part of that. Um, and frankly, to, to now to really focus on a technology platform. Um, so I really made the shift from thinking more about how do we integrate digital health? How do we do these all these different things? How do we make them work in clinical trials? How do we help drive adoption for that work? Really shifting to focusing on building a technology platform and enhancing that platform that really helps people sort of mechanize this. And so um, so the platform that we have today and we um, sell in and, and work with a number of great customers on covers everybody from pharma to CROs to pro- healthcare providers to payers. Um, and so, again, I, I really wanted to take a chance at sort of being that enabler, um, seeing sort of where this value could be, seeing that it really had a lot of value um, as long as people could understand how to adopt it. And then they needed a technology platform to get them there. Fred's an amazing company that actually helped launched four of the uh, eight original research kit studies and had been uh, involved in a lot of innovation around research kit and care kit programs. Lots more to come out uh, in 2017 on that. Can you tell me a little bit about your business model? Is it a per person per month? Is, a, is there a, a license fee that you provide to your customers? Yeah, so we, uh, we provide a platform as a service. Uh, and the platform as a service has a couple combinations to it. But overall, really simply... We have some customers that come in and say, hey, I want to deliver a remote patient study 
for this observational study I want to do. Can you come along, partner with me, help me build this custom for this particular study? And we do that. And so you build what's called an app and an omni-channel experience. So we have an app that's built off a research kit that can convert to Android through Research Stack that has a, a, you know, a web, uh, may have wearables, it may have other sort of features and functionalities connected around it, but the app, the mobile experience, is the primary thing we're engaging the patient with. And so we have a lot of people that, that want us to do that for them. On the other hand, we have a number of customers that come in and talk to us at a more of an enterprise level to say, hey, we want to deliver, you know, 10, 20, 30 of these types of studies. And we want to make sure that we can scale that and that we have a library built for us, something that's repeatable for us, and that we sort of can just buy these integrations because it would take us so much more money to build it ourselves. We'd rather just buy that and make that happen. And so that becomes more of a licensure situation with, you know, sort of a setup license fee. And then there's always some customization in mobile health. But our goal is to really, obviously, if where we can minimize that, um, it's better and it's more cost effective. So at a high level, we're, you know, as you'd expect in mobile health today, we work in, in a number of different models. And frankly, we're, you know, in this space, it's moving so fast. Um, people throw us out interesting models all day, you know, around, hey, what if we did this? And what if we did that? And we're always open to entertaining that because I think there's an innovative space where where when people get the fact that mobile health can change not just the way they do their work, but it can actually change their business models and how they conduct them, uh, that gets really fun. And, and I think that that's, that's something we want to be able to do to deliver value for our customers as well. I imagine there's a big component of it that's really around a, a strategic consulting sales process, if you will, uh, because one of the things I realized years ago when I started to get into complex sales is that if we didn't understand the process that people had uh, either in place or that they wanted to move to, any technology, any solution we lay on top of it is just going to make things worse and people are going to blame the technology or the solution rather than look at the underlying processes that might need to be changed or tweaked to really get the outcomes that they need. So can you give me some idea about how you broach that conversation with your potential clients and your target clients and how much of your time and focus is really about uh, uh, helping them develop that so that you can create a solution that's going to work for everybody. You know, the reality is, is, is we're not consultants. I'm not a consultancy firm. We end up doing a lot of, of support and consulting because you're right. You have to educate people on this because what I would tell you is that um, as complicated as it is, I have seen a shift in understanding. It's not with everybody, but we're seeing people that are not just the innovation leaders and the innovation um, VPs that really did a lot of this work early on, especially in pharma and healthcare providers. We're also starting to see research and development teams and operation team members. And in the hospital systems, we're starting to see practitioners. And in the payers, we're starting to see some of the technology companies all kind of coming our way and, and really having a better baseline understanding than they did. So do we still have to do education? Yes. Are we still doing something very disruptive that takes a little bit of time to wrap your head around? Absolutely. But what I would say is I think that we have to give a lot of credit to our industry that we're catching on to mobile health pretty fast. And I think that that learning curve is getting smaller. I'm just trying to help that learning curve be even smaller faster by not just telling people what to do, but by giving them a model in which they could cost effectively and quickly do something about it. Because you and I both know, like it's one thing to do a bunch of PowerPoint the first time you do the study and you make a bunch of successful mistakes and you just learn it yourself is that it, when you really feel empowered to not just talk about innovation, but to really do it. And I'll tell you, my career and what I've been really passionate about is not just talking about innovation 
and not thinking up of grand ideas because there's a lot of them and they're all good. But it's really been about what are we going to do today because we need to do innovation that gets us a crawl, walk, run to where we want to be. Right. And one of the things we talked about before, John, you and I, is uh, is around understanding how the model works and and helping people uh, that you're working with understand that you know how the model works and you're and you're going to deliver what they need, but you're just going to deliver it a little bit differently. When you think about how these these new models work, um, there's two types of things I think we need. And I think we're running into these types of individuals and companies. We need more of these entrepreneur translator types of people. So people in digital health that know enough about the industry, know enough about the market, and know enough about the technology. They don't have to be deep experts in all of them, but they got to know enough that when you talk to them, they can actually bring the different people together and translate that innovation, translate sort of how that works. And what I would tell you is, is I spent a lot of time saying, do you guys remember how you moved from paper to EDC or how you moved from this to that? Or do you see how Walt Disney World used to give fast passes out and now they have an omni-channel experience with Magic Band and an app and a web experience? And when I translate those for people, it actually ends up being a really good example to show them that what mobile health is doing is taking this over here that we used to do it this way. And you're now doing this and collecting this new data. And that's what's disruptive about it. And so, again, it's finding these translators, finding these examples, finding these sort of models and stories for people that really help them relate to, oh, I see what John's talking about. I see how that works. Because I think that's what people need to, to understand to really start to unlock that idea. And, and again, we're in the business in digital health today. I think everybody, all the listeners here, if you're in digital health, I think you probably are nodding right now. You're, we're in the business of making ambassadors just as much as we are um, moving innovation forward. Right? So we spend all this time trying to get people on the bus and, and, and I do think we spend a lot of time with the early adopters who kind of we can get on our side really easily. We probably spend too much time with the laggers, so people who are just going to keep paying for AOL dial-up and don't want to hear anything else. But there's all these folks in the middle that are really open to this innovation. They're really open to it. But we do have to, we do have to come up with models that helps them to understand, to repeat, and then to adopt and in that order. So I think the crawl, walk, run there and, and our ability to make ambassadors becomes really important to moving this work forward in our companies. Well, we have a very engaged listening audience here. What is it that we can do to support you, to, to follow the work that you're doing? And what can we look forward to in the coming 18 months, two years? Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, the best thing is you can go to threadresearch.com and you can just check out what we're doing and, um, and know that um, if you've got an idea, if you've got a partnership, if you're trying to do remote patient research or virtual studies, um, call me. I would love to talk about that. You can also connect with me personally on LinkedIn. Um, really easy to find. And we're sharing a lot about what we're doing and some of the innovation that's coming. And we'll have a lot of big announcements coming out next year, which we're really excited about. So I think the best way to keep tabs and to engage us is that. And just to, to reach out. Uh, we're a smaller company. So if you send me an email, you're going to get an email on our call back. We're not going to send you to any sort of extra lines or, or new emails. It's just john at threadresearch.com. Excellent. Well, I'll have links to your LinkedIn profile and to that email address on the website. People can get in touch with you. Are you active on Twitter? Is your company uh, active on Twitter? So I'm just at John Reitz and at Thread Research. Excellent. We'll include those links on there. John, this has been really helpful. I have a few questions that I'd like to ask you before I let you go. Can you indulge me? Yeah, go for it. Excellent, John. What's your favorite quote or a saying that motivates you? 
there's a couple, but one that sticks out is uh, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Uh, and, and the reason it motivates me is that, you know, in our business and digital health, especially, we're trying to move mountains. Like we're trying to train everybody about digital health. But we have to remember that sometimes we have to focus on that first individual that's here and spend time with them and do for them what we wish we could do for everybody, but invest that time. And I think we need more people to invest in the next people that are bringing digital health forward because we need more ambassadors. What advice would you give to other innovators and entrepreneurs working in digital health? Know that that you're sprinting in a marathon, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that it's okay. And so finding good balance there is really important. But know that your speed and your ability to run is really important, but it's not going to happen overnight. That we're putting in investment today for what we all believe is continuing to happen and what's going to change. And that requires us to run fast, but have a marathon view so we don't get too tired. Persistence wins in this. And I think that's really important for us. What book would you recommend to our listeners and why? So you asked me for one, I got to give you two. So, so my first one is Fascinate by Sally Hogshead. Fascinate is a great book about, it's really around personal branding and marketing, but there's so many principles in there about, about how to be different. And one of my favorite other quotes from that, from that book is that um, uh, different is better than better. And so that book taught me a lot. The other book I tell you, because I just finished it, is The Third Wave by uh, Steve Case. It's a pretty big book. But when I hear about everything in The Third Wave around partnerships and integrations, I think a lot of people in digital health, if you haven't read or listened to that book, you're going to smile because I think Steve Case makes a great case um, for the fact that we might be onto something as an industry. What technology tool or app would you recommend and why? It's funny. I usually talk about um, UDI when I when people ask me what my favorite app is. It's uh, U is Uber, D is Delta, and I is Envision, which is our uh, software that I use to show off different apps and things that are uh, you know sort of simulated. Um, because when I'm on the road, um, that's really the three things I'm using consistently. We're going to make a donation to a charity of your choice. What charity have you chosen? And can you tell us a little bit about what they do? Yeah, that's amazing, Dan. And I, I think it's an amazing part of your podcast. Thanks for doing that. So uh, the charity I, I'm choosing is the Spina Bifida Association. So it's spinabifidaassociation.org backslash donate. Uh, SBA um, is really near and dear to my heart. My younger brother has Spina Bifida um, and lives an amazing life and is an amazing contributor to society. And we love uh, Christian because of just who he is. And the Spina Bifida Association has been aligning with parents and physicians and caregivers to help um, not just figure out early signs of spina bifida, where a lot of really innovative research has gone, but actually helping um, people who are now older with spina bifida, who are living much longer than they were before, have a more um, fulfilling life. And so they're doing a lot of amazing research in that space and, and really love to donate to them to make sure they can continue to do that research. Excellent, John. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. It sounds like an excellent choice and something that hopefully will go on to uh, help other families that are that are facing a similar situation. John, is there anything else before I let you go? You know, Dan, thank you for what you're doing. And you know, I'm an avid listener. I get a lot out of your podcast. And so seriously, I just thank you that you're out there doing it. This is a lot of work that people don't realize that podcasting is a lot of work and you're out there making it happen and pulling us together. So thanks for doing that. There you have it, John Reitz, Chief Product Officer and Partner at Thread Research, guest lecturer at Duke University, and featured guest of Episode 17 on Digital Health Today. 
You can find links to the software packages, tools, and everything we discussed at digitalhealthtoday.com slash 17. Lots of great guests in store in the coming weeks. Daniel Kraft, Shafi Ahmed, Dave Chase, Arshia Vahabzadeh, and many more. Stay informed by joining our digital health community. It's free. Just visit digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash join and join the thousands of innovators around the world working to transform healthcare. Have a guest recommendation, an upcoming event, or a question for one of our past guests, or just a question in general? Reach me on Twitter at HealthTechDan, and be sure to follow the show at DHealthToday. That's all for this episode. Thanks for tuning in, and until next time, keep on innovating. This episode is brought to you by Zero Accounting Software. If you're looking for a great way to manage your books, I recommend you look at Zero. That's X-E-R-O software. Zero is a beautiful, easy-to-use, cloud-based accounting software that's ideal for small and medium businesses. Zero has nearly 1 million subscribers in over 180 countries, and it's accessible anytime, anywhere, and even on your mobile device. It seamlessly integrates with over 500 apps and was ranked number one by Forbes as the world's most innovative growth company. Get a 30-day free trial by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash free.